taking the time will reveal so much about the people you bring on, but also about yourself. Because one of my insecurities back then that made me hire a lot of people quickly was, can I even do this? Can I build a solid business and bringing people on was in my mind evidence of oh i can attract talent and build a business when fundamentally you just need to take your time hello and welcome to the polsky center's where are they now podcast i'm colin keely and we catch up with founders from chicago boost new venture challenge on the show join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success this week we have shay fabodi interviewed by ellen rudnick Shay is the CEO and co-founder of Varuna, which is the leading water distribution system monitoring company, providing real-time visibility, awareness, and insights to water utilities. Before that, Shay was the CEO and co-founder of Power to Switch, which enabled residential consumers to make responsible decisions about their energy usage and expenses. Ellen Rudnick is a senior advisor at the Polsky Center and professor at Chicago Booth. Ellen also previously served as the executive director of the Polsky Center. Without further ado, here's Shay Fabodi and Ellen Rudnick. Good morning, Shay. Good morning, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us for this celebration of NVC at 25 and participating in our podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off before we get into your entrepreneurial ventures. I'd like to you to tell us a little bit about yourself before you came to Booth. You know, where were you born? Where did you live? And what were you doing before you came to Booth? Yes, um, so I am Nigerian. I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and ended up in the UK for postgrad. I'd done my undergrad in Nigeria in um, metallurgical and materials engineering. Moved to the UK to pursue a postgrad, and I really wanted to get into the auto industry. I went to Warwick University for manufacturing systems engineering. But then this was around when all of the auto industry moved to to China. And I found myself needing to transfer my skills to another industry um, because I wasn't ready to move to China. Maybe I should have, but I wasn't ready to move to China at that point. Uh, So I ended up at a power plant in the UK. I served about half a million residents in the London area. And um, the markets in the UK are a bit f- further ahead. The electricity markets in the UK are a bit further ahead than the US. And while working at the plant is when I actually came up with the idea that I ran through the MVC. But we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. So I was working in the UK, met my uh, wife now, Michelle, who is from. Dallas, but was working in the UK as well. She moved to the US and I decided we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. So I moved to the US. Wow. So in moving to the US, is that when you decided to think about applying to business school or did you uh, come here and work somewhere else first? Yeah. So as I just shared, I moved from Nigeria to the UK, attended school, and uh, my dad always had this piece of advice because he traveled a lot 
for for school growing up as well and he he suggested when you move to a new country immerse yourself in the educational structures because you get to meet people you get to learn acquire a skill while meeting people because those two things will absolutely enable you to thrive in whatever place you move to so once i decided i was going to move to the us i started applying to business school and we were we decided we would live in chicago so i applied to to booth and um to northwestern and ended up at booth yeah so you you mentioned that you were thinking about your idea before you came to booth and in fact you told me earlier right that you yes included it in your application to booth i did yeah i did did you actually think at the time did you know about the nvc at the time i actually did so a good friend of mine ebon onogrua she had moved from the uk to come to booth and she would come to the uk during the breaks and we'd catch up and she had so much good stuff to share about booth and um she knew about my entrepreneurial desires and would mention the mvc i think her class her year during her time at booth was when um braintree was was going through so anyway uh, yes the the short answer there is i did know about the mvc before coming to booth that was in my application i mentioned a few of the professors i ended up taking their classes in my application as well um pretty intentional about most things uh around that experience for me yeah so the power to switch company that eventually evolved from you know after the nvc is that very similar to the idea did your idea evolve at all over the process of the nvc from the application oh absolutely yes <laughs> it uh as i'm sure you all you've all seen in the 25 years of the nvc a great idea on paper meets the reality of actually implementing it and running through the rigor of the mvc um and it very quickly <laughs> changes and morphs into something that addresses a need i had ideas before coming in but um even during the mvc in in doing some of the customer discovery we had to do for the class i quickly realized there were a few wrong assumptions that i'd made there including even the team the team i selected during the mvc that was i remember the night before our second in class pitch instead of practicing the pitch we were arguing in a room cuz we'd found out some things from interviewing customers prospective customers that wouldn't have fit this tight nice narrative we were trying to put out for the mvc so yes the summary summary is it changed a lot during the experience so actually backing up a little bit here you know moving to a new country moving to a new new city like chicago starting a in a new new school and certainly thinking about launching your own business must suggest that you're not risk averse uh, it's a, it's a great it's a great one uh, my my wife likes to frame it this way that i approach most things with a required level of naivete to keep me moving forward 
And I'd say, not, not sure I'm risk averse. I gather as much information as I can to support a decision my gut has made. Is, is a <laughs> <laughs> So sort of a calculator risk, right? Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, um, it was tough. I won't, I won't pretend here. It was, as you mentioned, a ton of, of new things. And I'll suggest the comfort of a community of founders at Booth, uh, some of them I'm still friends, really good friends with actually, was helpful in those early days as I embarked on all these new things, yeah. So maybe we could just start by you sharing with our listeners, what was the idea for Power to Switch? Yeah, um, so Power to Switch was the first retail electricity marketplace for consumers and small commercial businesses. We allowed customers, users to shop around for electricity options to either reduce how much they spent on electricity or buy clean energy. We also connected them with energy efficiency products. And the tagline I remember using uh, during the MVC was, Expedia for retail electricity. So in 2021, that sounds pretty reasonable, but in 20, I think it was what, 2009, was it? 2009, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 2009, when you had this idea and you decided to enter into the New Venture Challenge, this was quite a novel idea. Nobody it had was. really been doing this. So you know, how did you go about, and you talked a little bit earlier about customer discovery, but how did you go about kind of validating this idea and knowing this was something that had potential? Yeah, so um, a big part of it was was having lived through it in the UK. Remember I mentioned earlier that the UK markets um, on the energy and electricity side a few years ahead of the US markets. And right after the stint at the power station and right before I moved to the US, I worked for a company that was exactly what I just, described as the idea, but they were focused on big box retailers buying electricity and green energy for big box retailers through this auction-like marketplace. So I'd seen that happen in the UK. And even while I was at that company, knowing I was about to move to the US, I started digging around um, the regulations here in the US found out there were about 15 states that had adopted the same regulatory structure as the UK. Even though the the consumer adoption hadn't picked up, I knew there was a gap between what customers knew and what was available. And it was this age of Priceline, Expedia, these um, marketplaces and aggregation platforms that allowed consumers to make a choice. So even while I was in the UK, before starting at Booth for and before applying for the MVC, I'd called a few of the electricity suppliers to say, do you guys offer retail electricity? They're like, yes. And then when I moved to Chicago, did the same thing, tried to switch my home to an alternative provider. And I realized there was no one place to do that. So started working on the MVP, 
I would walk the streets of the West Loop asking people in stores if they knew they could switch their electricity. They're like, ah, I don't think so. Is this true? And I would ask them to give me the electricity bill and come back to the Polsky Center where uh, we'd gotten a space and just call the five or so electricity suppliers to ask them for rates, put it on a spreadsheet, put it in a piece of paper, uh, print that out with the Posty Center printer, and then take that book of options to the customers. The there was a there was a laundromat, there was a, a Hummus store, I believe. And I gave them the book. They'd select one, sign that piece of paper, and I'd scan it and send it to the supplier. So that was the first few months of, of the experience. And it was part of the evidence I put in the pitch for, for the MVC. That's great. And I, I love I love this, you know, very rudimentary MVP. <laughs> <laughs> That you developed because you know we've seen this you know with a lot of our student applications you know just yeah. just having some proof right that yes. there's some interest here. So let's talk a little bit about the NVC process. So you, yes. you you got into the NVC, which is a very competitive process, and you had uh, you had a team. I believe you had a co-founder too. Can you talk a little bit or how about how that evolved? Yeah, yeah. So. First off, the MVC, we, it was super competitive to get in. But I think, to your point, what allowed us to get in was the fact that we'd done a lot of that, proving out the opportunity. That being said, just to clarify, we didn't make the final 10. But, and a lot of it was, um, I think I mentioned on our, on our initial call, one of the judges doing the pitch in class was adamant that this was not a possibility, that there was nothing like retail electricity. And um, I remember thinking he was the first person to comment after our pitch, and it sort of went downhill from there for us. But I picked the team of other, a few other folk who had ideas that they wanted to run through the MVC, but they didn't get selected. I did pulled them together. And that was one of the big mistakes I made because I hadn't really um, vetted the team. It was just, let me get some buddies to help us do stuff. So we learned a ton doing that MVC, just about the MVC experience, about team building, clarity of purpose. Uh, What are we trying to achieve here? Is this for the MVC? Is this for the business? And where do those things converge so that we can do the right thing, the next thing? And we were assigned a few mentors through the MVC who were amazingly helpful. I guess they'd either done the MVC before. Sean Harper was one of the people that I was um, talking to back then, and I still talk to him now, because he'd run a similar company, Fee Fighters, through the MVC a year before we did. Um, and Waverly, Waverly Deutsch connected me to him during the MVC. And that was pivotal for us, just 
uh, in thinking through and doing the necessary work to to keep building the business. So going back to this issue related to the members of your team and selecting yes. the members of your team, when you think about that, and you also think about that, you know, as as you move forward with other projects, other ventures, you know, what lessons in terms of what kind kind of criteria would you now be thinking about if you were to add members to your team? You probably experience this, um, having done this for 25 years, there are some team members for the MVC who are interested in the MVC for what it, what it means. And there are some who truly want to build a business. And what you are looking for doing the MVC and really in, in building a business people who actually want to build a business. This, this is, uh, and I love the rigor we experienced during the MVC. It wasn't just a business plan competition. It was a, how many people have you spoken to <laughs> to validate that this is an opportunity that exists and can be a big business um, as evidenced by the number of big businesses that have come out of the MVC. Um, including ours. And it was very much a just being clear about what the goal is, what the interest and the desire is in selecting a team. I, I'll broaden it out and say um, shared values was one of the underlying points there for me. Do we see this the same way? Do you care about helping people make better decisions about their energy usage like I do. If you don't, maybe this MVC experience isn't for you. Maybe this company isn't the one you should work in. There are other ideas you could work on, but considering how tough it is to build a business, you absolutely have to to share intentions and goals and values. Yeah, totally agree. I, you know, if you don't have a passion for the business, given how many hours you put into this effort, yes, you know, if yes. you don't have a passion for the business, it's just not going to work. Exactly. And but you know, Phil joined your team. Yes, and he has, did. Has stayed did. with your team, right? Yes, he did till till the acquisition. And I'll, I'll, there's a there's a fantastic story there actually. So Phil had a different idea during the MVC. His was what ended up becoming a really big business as well. His idea was uh, quirky, this collaborative space, online space for product design. That was his idea for the MVC and while I had part of Switch. And the thing that ended up becoming the core reason why Phil and I worked together, his second pitch during the MVC, they also didn't make the final 10 companies, But during the second pitch for the MVC, he stood there, pitched the company, and the judges were ripping, as they do. They ask you questions that cut to the core of whether your proposition and assumptions are valid and you've proven them out. And the thing that really attracted me to Phil was while the other members of his team just totally crumbled under the pressure of those questions, started blaming other members of the team for not doing something or doing something wrong. Phil just kept it straight 
answered the questions, admitted where he didn't know, promised to go find that information. And it was just this phenomenal um, example of this is someone I'd love to work with. I'd love to go to battle with this guy every day for however many years it takes us to build this business. And so we connected after that experience. He went to work at Inkling, I believe, for the summer. We kept in touch. And when he came back in the second year, we started working together on, on part of Switch. Yeah. So you've been mentioning a little bit about the rigor of the process and the feedback that you get, you get in these Yes. <laughs> the classroom se- sessions with the, the, the judges and the coaches and so forth. And, yes. you know, as, as you said, you did not make it to the final 10 that year. But, yes. you know, as we know from experience that oftentimes the faculty and the judges can be wrong. Sometimes we don't, we don't <laughs> yes. always select the best, all the best companies that should move to the final 10. And we have had many companies that don't make it to the finals just because yes. they're just far enough along that have gone on to be really successful companies. And so Absolutely, yes. you're certainly not alone in that. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we still continue to get help from the Polsky Center. And that, that is what I always point out to, to people about that experience. We got office space over the summer at the Polsky Center, which is normally reserved for... I think the finalists, but we, we uh, star and the team decided to give us some space. I know that's part of, I think, standard now, but back then the space was limited. I remember we got a desk right outside Avi Stopper's company, Captain U. And, and Avi was amazingly helpful during that summer as well, because there was just a a lot of, Avi, what do you think about this? What's your experience in trying to generate traffic for your site? How much time do you spend on content? Just this very peer mentorship type experience that we ended up having from a cohort and a community of MVC companies that they didn't care we didn't make the finals. We didn't care we didn't make the finals. It was really just, we're all building businesses. How can we as a community, build great businesses. So you did NVC your first year, right? So I did, yes. And you spent the summer working at the Polsky Center building this thing, and then you come back for your second year. Yes. Were you, while you were working, taking classes and so forth in your second year, were you continuing to work on the business? Work on the business. Yeah, yeah. It made for, it made for a grueling second year. I'd probably do it exactly the same way because one of the things I chose to do was take the idea through a bunch of classes. I took Waverly's class in my second year, uh, building a new venture, I believe. I took it through that class. Um, I did some sort of experiential strategy classes that uh, I'm forgetting the names now, but it was front and center of how I crafted the second year which made for just, by the time we, we finished at Booth, I had this foundation, is how I'll frame it, um, that had been bolstered by crafting an experience that helped me answer a ton of questions about the viability of the business. Yeah. That's great. And it's great to be able to apply the things you're learning in your classes at the same exactly. time that you're trying to build a business. It becomes far less theoretical when you can actually apply it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, building spreadsheets to determine 
um, what the financial viability would be. I could just do that in, in the classes and back it up with what was ac- actually happening in real life. Yeah. So after graduation, you launched the business. Maybe you launched it before graduation. When did you kind of officially launch it? Um, I launched it during second year, registered it as an LLC during second year and started. um, I actually hired a dev shop in Chicago to, to help build it in second year. So by the time I was done, we, we had our graduation ceremony on, I think, the 22nd of June or something. And on the 23rd, I was back in front of my computer having to respond to some customer inquiries and stuff. So, <laughs> so obviously, to launch this business, you needed capital, right? Yes. And I do know that you were able to raise capital, close on a round. We, we did. I'd love for you to talk and share your experience in that process because it is not an easy process for any entrepreneur. Yes, yes. It was um it was it was grueling and we so f- we didn't raise it took us about a year and a half to raise uh funding after finishing um at Booth. We bootstrapped for the for the first two and a half years. Um, which I'd suggest was good for us in the sense that we didn't have the pressure of outside funding when we hadn't fully validated a lot of our assumptions. So we had a few things going right for us. We ended up making it into Techstars uh, Chicago. Again, uh, Sean Harper was super helpful with that because he'd gone through that same process the year before. It continued working on Free Fighters after school, after business school. It wasn't called Techstars back then in Chicago. I think it was called, was it Accelerate Labs? Accelerate, yes. Right. It was Accelerate Labs. He did it the year before us. And so we had a lot of his learnings to rely on, got in the next year, and then raised money in, the, in Q4 of 2011. Yeah, we raised um, about a million and a half in 2011, Q4. Yeah. Yeah, I know one of the investors in Accelerate Labs was Hyde Park Angels. Yes. And I know that they also were involved in your first round of funding. Yes. Is, is that how you got connected to HPA? Because they also have an association with the University of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, Professor, and I, I feel to mention this, while working out of the Pulsky Center, Professor Linda Dara was also someone I would pop into our office a lot just to, I'd be walking out, she'd be there and I'd have some questions. I'm like, can I spend five minutes or 10 minutes? And that access was phenomenal because as we were doing the rounds to raise money, um, she'd essentially seen us quote unquote grow up and connected us with a couple of the associates at Hyde Park Angels who did the diligence process at this almost at this in parallel to the tech stars uh, to the accelerate labs process and um, she was i believe our champion when we pitched HPA at Hyde Park Angels and ended up being part of the investment group from Hyde Park Angels that was part of that 1.5 million round that I mentioned yeah 
So there's a lot of data that has shows that you know, women founders and people of color have had a harder time accessing private capital. So maybe you could share what your thoughts are on that. I mean, you know, you were successful in raising, you know, your your, your first round of capital. Um, yes. But I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. I do. I do. Um, a lot of thoughts. So I'll share one anecdote. It's happened a couple of times, but I'll share one anecdote that sort of underlies this whole conversation about access to capital for Black and women and minority founders. I remember um, one of the investors, it was Colin, so Phil, my co-founder and I, Black, um, Phil, African-American, um, African, and now American at that point. And I remember him calling us boys. We're grown men. And I, I remember him calling us boys. And I'm thinking, you do understand the historical context of you, a white man, calling two black men boys. I Phil had two kids at this point. We were about to have our first kid. And we, we never really had a good relationship with that person for that reason. But the crazy thing is, so now I'm running another company, Varuna, and it's happened again during this experience, 10 years apart, um, being called a boy. I have two kids. I'm a grown man. You don't, you shouldn't. And you can tell there's this, I'll say discount and disregard and disrespect that is just embedded in some of these conversations that I can't, I can't imagine some of my white counterparts experience. So I'll, I'll put that in the bucket there. That being said, we have managed to, I've managed to raise money twice now. Grueling experience, it's grueling for everybody, but add that layer of just uh, this baggage that we haven't fully addressed as a society. Uh, and so, yes, there is a, a big issue with the industry not recognizing the patterns they need to recognize that, oh, these guys can make us money as well. Because fundamentally, it's about returns. There's the, oh, can they give us the returns we want? I haven't seen too many people like him give me the returns I want. And that continues to perpetuate the unwillingness of the ecosystem to change and fund um, Black women and minority um, founders. That being said, that's changing a bit. Even though it's changing a bit, one thing I'm still seeing, and I have um, a lot of data points around this, but mainly personal, just a lot of founders of color coming to me saying, you've done this, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? And then they eventually get someone giving them a term sheet. And I see the term sheet and I realize, oh, even in your giving these guys money, one, you're not writing a big check. This is not a real bet for you. This is a, let me do this so that I can say I've done this. And you say you want to lead a, a founder, a black female founders round. You're calling yourself the lead investor and you give them a term sheet for a hundred grand in a million dollar round. That's not a great signal. And then you put a, a 2.5 post-money valuation on it. I'm like thinking, really? 
at the pre-seed round, you are essentially converting this founder to an employee. This isn't right. So there's the aggressions and the microaggressions. There's the not really believing they can provide, they being Black and female and minority founders. And then sort of the third part of it is just the, the need to empower Black investors as well. They're fund managers that the total amount of funding for Black, um, minority, and women founders in decision-making positions at funds is not as much as Anderson Horowitz's last fund, one fund. So anyway, I could go on, but my point is, is there are problems. We're starting to have conversations around them. Some things are being done. But fundamentally, it's a societal problem that we just need to address. Yeah. Well, it sounds like in some cases, it might just people just trying to check a box, right? Performative. Performative. Yeah. Yeah. But from where I sit, I've seen some progress. Yeah. In terms yeah. of actual funds that are now being launched with yep. a particular focus on minority communities, female founders, and so forth. And, you know, there, I, I think there's hope. There is, there is. That, that things will, will get better and hopefully those funds will have more people managing them that, that look like the people they want to invest in. Absolutely, absolutely. I think just in the past week, um, about three funds, two, that, two in particular that come to mind immediately, um, over $100 million um, with the, the funds raised by uh, black and female uh, GPs. So I'm pretty excited about the future. And we're having the conversation and doing doing the work as well. So let, let's return to building power to switch. Yes. So you've gotten your first round of capital and you guys are off and running. Perhaps you could talk about some of the issues you face in terms of getting customers, building the team and mm-hmm. so forth. Yes. Yeah, so we address the funding problem to a certain extent by raising the round. The talent problem um, or the talent issue, one of the, the things that we've, I'm making sure we don't do this time with my current company is rushing through just hiring because we, we had all this stuff going on, all this good stuff going on. We started bringing on people without the rigor that I'd realized we needed to. They're trying to grow fast. You're just trying to get things going. And so had a, a lot of bumps with hiring, bringing people on and then very quickly realizing, ah, oh, this, isn't, this isn't working out. One quick example, one of the guys we brought on on the sales side was just a toxic dude, but he was our best sales guy. (laughs) And eventually toxic to everybody else on the team. We eventually had to to fire him. And I remember the morning I had a conversation with a few advisors who are still investors in my current company right now, actually. And they're like, ah, you, pop, you need to get rid of him. What's your decision? I was like, I'll get rid of him on a Monday morning. I walk in on Monday, 
call him into the office, into the conference room. And he knew immediately, he goes, are you about to fire me? And before I could even respond, he stands up and walks out. And that, that's the last I've seen him since 2011. But he stood up, walked out, and then I called the rest of the team into the conference room, about eight of, eight of us. And I go, um, just had to let X go. And one of the members of the team was like, you should have done this about four months ago. And stories start popping up about just some of the toxicity. And I apologize to the team, but it, it really set the stage for us to just be more intentional and careful for the last few years of the company about hiring people and being conscious that that defines the culture of the company, especially at that smaller size. So uh, a lot of bumps that way. I learned a lot of things not to do. <laughs> On, on that front, the product was fantastic. We put a lot of, of work into it to the point that um, we were acquired in 2014. And if you still pull up the product today, at the acquiring company then got acquired um, by Red Ventures, they still maintain the user experience we built. It was that, that ahead of its time, that phenomenal. Um, and it's because that was where we were intentional, the best user experience for the product. And I just needed to learn a lot more about building the team and growing to scale. So I know when I was pursuing my own entrepreneurial venture, somebody told me, you should be slow to hire and quick to fire. Yeah, yeah that many entrepreneurs do exactly what you do. They're, they're so overwhelmed that they bring on people. It's so expensive to bring on people yes, and invest in people and then find out that they don't work out. Yes. Taking the time will reveal so much about the people you bring on, but also about yourself. Because one of my insecurities back then that made me hire a lot of people quickly was, can I even do this? Can I build a solid business and bringing people on was, in my mind, evidence of, oh, I can attract talent and build a business when fundamentally you just need to take your time. Right. right. So in 2013, you made the decision to sell the company, to choose energy. Yes. yes. And I, I know from my own experience, selling your company can be a very, very difficult decision to make. So perhaps you could talk about that whole process. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I think I've shared this with a lot of people. I didn't think it was time to sell, frankly, but in hindsight, it was. We sold around when we were going out to raise a Series A because a couple of competitors in the market had gone out and raised, one had raised about 20-something million dollars, one had raised about 15 million with an 8 million line of credit. But we couldn't convince the market that we, we were able to. I don't think anyone saw me and thought, if I give this dude $10 million, he'll know what to do with it. And that's fair. I probably didn't. But um 
the we had these other two companies that were now f- well funded and they both came with offers um we ended up selling to one of them they both came with offers um about half the team went with choose energy and i remember having um sam yegan was one of our investors angel investors back then he's now his fund is now the lead investor in my current company but i remember after that acquisition sitting with sam and having this conversation about how it is even the process of making sure the acquisition works out is grueling it's some of the hardest periods of my life that i've worked just you have lawyers coming at you you have the business of running the business going on at the same time you have the acquisition process going on so that was a an extremely emotional but also um difficult time and it happened and i was grabbing coffee with sam early one morning and he goes look what you're feeling is typical regardless of the outcome you just sold your baby you spent the last 6 years or so working on this you just sold your baby give yourself time to recover and grieve cuz it is a loss whether you made money or not it is a loss and um he told a few businesses at that point and he was like look even when we've gone public with stuff it's still a grieving process cuz it's now just not that idea and baby you had and um so that was a a tough period for about and we also had my first kid right around then so it was made for a few months of just trying to figure out what to do next and i've helped a lot of other founders going through acquisitions just to to manage what was a a wild period for sure so what was next for shay after selling power to switch did yeah, you take some so did you take did you take some time off just to i did i did i um i spent about four months with uh he was around a year old then um we would just sit at home binging breaking bad for days on end <laughs> i hope he's not influenced by what he was watching with me back then but um spent a few months doing that i i love to read and i write a lot so i did a lot of that during the 5 6 months and then i ended up at the clean energy trust in chicago we're doing amy fancetic who was running the energy trust then she was about to launch a fund a seed stage fund for companies at the intersection of climate and technology so she brought me on to help with just developing her thesis around that investing in a few companies and um I did that for a couple of years before moving down to Austin, Texas. I want to ask another question which is somewhat related to power switch and also to the clean energy trust. Yes. You know, Michael Polsky. Yes. Is in the energy business and in the alternative energy business and I believe he actually he, he was an investor he may have been an investor in power switch was. through HPA he was. and he also helped launch clean energy trust. So did you have did you have any interactions with him during this time? I did. So Michael was actually the chairman of our board um, at Power to Switch. Um and um he just 
phenomenally helpful. He's built amazingly successful businesses. So it was this phenomenal experience of building part of switch and learning from him as he built I mean, Venergy. And um, he started the Kinergy Trust. And I'll confess that the first sort of big break for us at Part of Switch was pitching at the Clean Energy Trust event. Um, we pitched, and a few months after was when we got into, this was shortly after leaving Booth, then we got into Accelerate Labs, then we got funding, and Michael Polsky was the um, second largest check in Part of Switch back then, yeah. How did you get him to be chairman of your board? That's fabulous. Yeah, it was. Um, I remember meeting with him when we were doing the round. I, I believe it was Amy Fonsetic who set up the meeting, I believe. So, and we sat there and talked about sort of the future of the electricity industry, which is what I, I of utilities generally, climate tech, um, renewable energy. And I'd written a few things that I shared with him before meeting with him. And really the conversation was really around, where do we see this industry going? What are your thoughts? I'd been the, one of the co-chairs of the energy group at Booth. And I'd invited Michael Polsky to present at our conference. So we met a few times, but then we eventually sat down for about an hour or so. And at the end, he goes, I'm in. And I asked him, will you be on the board? I'd really love for you to, one, lend us credibility, but also get the opportunity to really sit with you and learn from you. And um, it was phenomenal for me, yeah. That, that's great to hear. And, you know, you, you guys share a bond, which is both the industry and you're both successful immigrant entrepreneurs yeah yeah <laughs> um not 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 in the same cadre of of success but i'll 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 take any any um affiliations that i can get he he really was amazingly helpful for us just to think through the dynamics of the industry and the grit required to build a business in this space yeah great so now you you've moved to austin texas yes um, maybe you could, what, what, what inspired you to move to Austin, Texas? And tell us a little bit about your inspiration for Veruna Tech. Yes. Yeah, so um, we moved to Texas. As I mentioned, we had a kid. We're about to have our second kid. My wife is from Dallas. Um, and we were just ready for two things, to be closer to family with our kids and just new adventures for both of us. It wasn't warmer weather? There's a story there. We we would always come to um, Austin for South by Southwest and also visit her family down here. And that year when we moved, um, 20, 2015, we came for South by in March and then went back to Chicago. And the, mon the morning, the Monday morning after we got back to Chicago, it snowed. And this was Saturday. We'd been in shorts. Monday, it snowed. And she called me um, on the way to work. And she's like, I can't do this anymore. And we, by June, we'd moved to Austin. 
Um, and so we got down here um, and I joined a startup down here, but realized, you know what, there are bigger problems I'd like to solve. And the Flint tragedy had happened a few years before that. And um, while working with a few utilities and traveling, I did a lot of traveling around the world. And I just realized it's the same thing. There's this water problem across the world that we're not paying attention to. And it reminded me of some of the issues the electricity industry had had before. And I realized that ah, there's a solution here that I can build. And then it hit home. It hit home. We had a, some water contamination issues here in Austin. And by day six or seven, you couldn't get water on the shelves in supermarkets. And I realized, wow, this is a bigger tragedy than, than we're giving credence to. And I realized it was what I was going to spend the next 10 years of my life working on. So could you describe a little bit about what Bruna Tech actually does? Yeah. So um, I'll talk about the problem quickly. And then when we have contamination issues in our water systems across the U.S. and across the world, it's because the utility doesn't know the constituents of the water at that point in those locations. They have to wait for a customer to say, my water smells funny or tastes funny. What we do at Varuna is we drop sensors at critical points within a city in their water distribution system. And we pull the data into simple intuitive dashboards that alert the utility of any issues that might exist. And as we gather more data, we can start to predict possible contamination shocks so that Flint doesn't happen again, so that the Austin situation doesn't happen again. We like to think of ourselves as, as Verona as the one source of truth for water quality data um, across, we hope to be across the world, but that's what we do. So who are your, are, are the utilities your major customers? Is it corporations, buildings? Yeah, so I'll frame it this way. We will put our sensors in commercial buildings, in the utilities distribution system, and the data and the recommendations and the insights are useful for utilities. They would pay for the product. And then for commercial buildings, there are regulations that require them to monitor the quality of the water in their commercial buildings. And so they also pay for the access to the data to generate the report. So utilities on one hand, commercial buildings on the other, excuse me. Yes. So this is obviously a very visible and growing problem in the U.S. Yes. And, and, and therefore, I expect it's going to be a pretty large market. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this time around as you're building Varuna, you know, maybe talk about the, the fundraising process that you've been able to go through. Is this something where there's a more sensitivity to this as you're trying to raise money than there was when you're trying to raise money for Power to Switch? So I, I, I wish I could say it's easier. <laughs> it's not. So there's this um, uh, folk think I'm, I'm masochistic in that way. 
for hard industries, because water and power are hard industries in the sense that I've had investors tell me, I don't see a huge exit here. And like, I don't see a huge exit. And, I, and my response is always, it's because we don't pay attention to this industry. There are hundreds of billion dollar companies in power and water, but we only focus on the Googles of the world because we know they're more visible. So uh, fundraising has been interesting in the sense that we had our early believers who were investors in power to switch to a certain extent, angel investors in power to switch. And two of those angel investors in, um, of the angel investors in Varuna were actually classmates from Booth. One, um, Rohini, she had a company in the same year in the MVC as I did, Masala Wala, I believe the name of the company was. Um, Rohini is doing phenomenal work in product um, in the Bay Area now. And she was one of our early investors. Uh, Mike Duffy, who has a public company that sells to utilities and cities um, and was a classmate at Booth, he's also an angel investor. So we had that initial core of believers. And then as we continue to make progress, as the, in, the information about the problem that exists in water in the US and the world has started to gain a lot more visibility. Um, we've been able to attract a few more investors. We got some money from Google, but uh, I mentioned Sam Yegan earlier. Sam and Steve Fast at Corazon uh, our largest check, they, they led our round, which we did this past October, uh, seed round. So hasn't been easy, but where as we, as we hit milestones and the world realizes how big a problem this is, something we've known all along, we're starting to see a lot more support on the funding side and interest from just phenomenal talent in, in, the, in the market. So we're, we're catching timing and interest and increasing visibility of the problem. Uh, it seemed to be working in our favor. But our goal fundamentally is to ensure everyone drinks clean water and that whether we get money from folk to do that or not, we're clear the problem exists and we'll do what it takes to address it. That's great. We all want to drink clean water. Exactly. <laughs> so, so we, you know, thinking back to Power to Switch and now with Varuna, you know, are there any specific leadership lessons that you learned that you're applying now as you are building Verona? Oh, yes. Uh, the first one I mentioned already about just being slow to hire. Slow to hire and recognizing that Talent is everywhere. That, that's really my take on it. Talent is everywhere. It's do you see the value of what we're doing? And do you want to be a part of what we're doing? What of achieving the goals, the vision we have? Because once you do that, once you as, as, an, as an employee that we bring on, if you do that, if you see that, we will be able to weather the tough times together because there will be tough times. That's really just fundamental. So that's a lesson that I learned 
um, doing the MVC experience because that was a tough one with just misalignment on a bunch of things. Then the first few rushed employees had part of Switch. And we're really trying not to do the same thing here at Veruna. There's a lot of work ahead of us, but we, we make offers to the people who are experts in the areas we need. In some cases, even don't know much about, about water, but they know their work, unlike most of the people we come in contact with. But critically, do they care about what we're doing? I'd say that's the biggest learning for me that I'm taking from that experience. There's a saying that a broken clock is right twice a day. And a big part of the part of switch experience was that we were early. We were earlier than most to this market. And the timing was a little off. I, I feel we've timed this right, but it's also from learning about um, the importance of timing with part of switch. So those are the two big ones for me. I think in prior conversations, you also mentioned to me the, you know, the ability to scale geographically is different too. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a thanks for the nudge there. We with part of switch, the regulatory structures hadn't covered or changed in all the US states. So in pitching, in conversations, investors would say, but this doesn't cover the US. And I'd say, but it will. And they're like, well, it's not a big enough market. I'm like, nah, it actually is. It actually is. Because, But it was also the timing thing um, then. We've made sure that is not the case with Varuna. Our solution, um, and I'll dive a little bit deep in here, contamination across the US tends to vary depending on where you are. On the East Coast of the country, you have metallic contaminants from pipes in buildings mainly. On the West Coast of the country, it's more organic contamination. And in Texas, it's sort of a mix of both. And in the Midlands, it's a mix of both as well. So what we decided to do too is we don't measure specific contaminants. We've built a product that measures water health. Um, And that also comes from my experience in the power side. And so our solution serves across the US, across the world, frankly, we've gotten interest from, we have uh, an agreement with a Mexican company, the largest water provider in Mexico. We just haven't been able to finalize things because of COVID. But the same solution works in all of Mexico, all of the US. And so our market size is much bigger by virtue of a product matching the problem, but also um, non-geographic constraints that was a big part of sort of the pushback we had back then with part of switch. Um, yeah, that's another big lesson, yeah. Do you think the infrastructure bill that the administration's talking about would, could be a real boon to your business? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Another pushback, everyone's like, ah, there's no money in water. I was like, it's because you don't know, one. There are billion-dollar companies in this industry, and we have to do the work of improving our infrastructure on the water side because 
I've been to places in the US where if you knew, you would think they were they're the third world countries that we refer to. The infrastructure is poor, but now between the infrastructure bill, the uh, availability of new technologies and the never ending desire for clean water, those things will um, all converge to, to ensure this industry as a whole moves forward and the bill will pay a big part of it. When, when, when there's money going somewhere, people will pay attention. That's, that's, uh, that's what I've learned, yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like you're at the right place at the right time this time around. We believe so. Um, we, we ended up as Google's um, World Water Day feature company on about a few weeks ago, we did a video with Google um, and uh, one of our customers in Louisiana and the interest we've gotten since that came out is just overwhelming. I've been telling folk it's, it's been about a month of being positively overwhelmed, but it's what we signed up for. So, so you know, you've mentioned throughout our conversation about kind of this informal booth network that you've taken advantage of. Yes. Either as investors or coaches and so forth. And uh, it, it, I, was, I was really pleasantly surprised when you shared that with me. Yes. In, in terms of how close many of you NVC participants have stayed in touch. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, I'd say as much as the learnings from the NVC and the rigor of working through it's that community that will be a lasting legacy as well uh, for me. Folk that were that went through the MVC that aren't even in went in at Booth in the two years I was at Booth, and I've mentioned Sean Harper, Rohini, um, Mike Mike Duffy. I remember around when we were trying to raise money for Power to Switch back then, and. Mike at Grubhub, who was building a marketplace as well, a few people introduced me to him and Steve Sanger, and they they would respond to my emails with questions about building the business. Um, I was still in touch with Steve Sanger about three, four months ago or so with some questions. He had some questions about some stuff. Sharice Konanen, who had a company doing the same MVC class, I was still on on a call with her a few weeks ago. It's just the community has been phenomenal. Um, I, I, I joke that around then, while Polsky Center and the MVC provided a community for entrepreneurs, because it wasn't a sexy thing back then. It's super sexy to be an entrepreneur right now, to be an entrepreneur right now. Back then, we were... I'd say this band of outsiders that the Polsky Center brought all under this family roof, you know, so. (laughs) That's great to hear. So as you think about, you know, students who might be entering NVC now or launching their businesses or any other future founders who are listening to this podcast, do you have any advice you'd like to share with them? Yeah, I'd say the two it'll be the two things i've already said the rigor you get from going through the experience 
and the community you build because they've shared in that rigorous experience and the shared desire to build industry-changing, life-changing businesses, be intentional about giving to that community, learning from the community, and maintaining the community because it's phenomenal to see some of these folk that I've mentioned just doing amazing things in the world and knowing, wow, I met them through the MVC and we are a cohort of just like-minded people that came together because of the MVC, you know? So it's, it's I'm, I'm eternally grateful for the experience. Are there any experiences or stories or challenges that we didn't address that you'd like to share? Have you thought of any other things that we should have asked you about? I guess one of the things I'll, um, I'll touch on again, and I mentioned it in the story about Phil, is the loneliness of the journey of building businesses. A part that I think is getting a lot more attention that... Um, everyone needs to pay a lot more attention to as it's gaining more more attention we all still need to pay attention to is just the mental health side of of this and i'll say it's almost this recognition amongst all of these founders that i've mentioned that we're all going through the same thing that's what deepens the bond and i'd suggest there's a there's room for programs like the mvc just the entrepreneurial ecosystem generally to find ways to provide support in that way as well. We, we all knew we needed support, which is why we sought each other out, you know, um, and there might be room to put a lot more structure around that. Cause um, as I'm sure you've, you've seen and heard from doing this for 25 years at the, at the NBC and the Polsky center, there's a, there's a lot that needs to, to go into supporting founders that it's wild because I someone still said this on a call to me yesterday. I was like, I wonder sometimes, am I crazy? And he stopped me and he goes, look, the fact that you thought it made sense to even start a business means you're crazy. Take that as given. <laughs> Take that as given. And then find ways to support yourself as you go. And he was joking, but it highlights a need that I know a lot of entrepreneurs have to, to get um, mental health support. So that's sort of the last part of this I'll, um, I'll, I'll touch on. Yeah. I'm actually going to ask another question, going back to some of your comments about Accelerate Labs and Techstars. Yeah. Today, there are lots and lots and lots of accelerator programs yes. and incubators and co-location spaces and a whole bunch of stuff that didn't exist yes. when you were going through power to switch. I think at the time, Accelerate Labs was the only game in town in, in Chicago. Town, yeah, it was, yeah. And, and so what, what do you think about the value of entrepreneurs participating in these types of programs? Do you think it's worth the effort? Um, you, you need to be intentional about it. As an entrepreneur, you need to be intentional about it. So the great thing about availability of options is that you can decide what you want from it and get it from it. So I'll use a, a quick example. Um, when we started Varuna, we, we knew we needed to build hardware 
And so we, we applied to a hardware-focused accelerator. And in the however many months we spent with that accelerator, we did three design sprints of our hardware. That normally takes about two, three years to go from um, design, prototyping, testing to redesigning. It probably takes two years to even do it once in some cases. We managed to do it in a few months, three times, because we knew this was what we would gain from the accelerator was phenomenal. We took that experience and then we went into this water-focused accelerator. They, they work with all the utilities, all the players in the water ecosystem. And because we are these, these outsiders into the ecosystem, we knew the relationships we could build with this already designed product that we'd tested through customer development. We spent the time with that accelerator solely focused on water. And now we can email the CEOs of the largest investor-owned utilities because of that experience to that accelerator. And we're super intentional about our goals. So, and that's yielded a ton of fruit for us. We are a known entity in the ecosystem and we have a product that is three years ahead of the competition because we took those two decisions. So I'm super excited at the availability of options, but there are a ton of time-wasting accelerators and incubators out there as well. Be intentional about what you want to get from it. And the good thing about the MVC to tie it in is just the intentionality of the MVC to surface real business opportunities and give them some money to get going with stuff. Um, I'd say that is absolutely how founders should think about about accelerators and incubators. Because it's there doesn't mean you should do it, really. <laughs> so Right. But, but it sounds, too, that having that time constraint, in the new venture challenge, you have a limited period of time. We, yes. Some of these accelerators are a limited period of time, so you've got to get things done very quickly. Exactly, exactly. And some are, some are, if you want to signal something to the market, then you go to some of those and the signal is set by you being accepted at, in the, that accelerator. But you have to be intentional about why you're doing these things, yeah. All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks, and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care.